All right. 2022. What will it bring? <laughs> Lots of hope out there that it's going to be better than 2021, but uh, no guarantees, friends, right? And uh, so we travel into it by faith, not by sight, as that song said to us, and we trust the Lord, believing that He will lead us in good ways. So I want to start a study on the little book of Ruth today, and it is an extraordinary story, uh, short, uh, very carefully crafted, uh, no wasted words. And so we want to introduce it and get started on it today. And uh, we start with this uh, wish prayer, that's what I would call it. And it is a wish prayer that uh, one of the main characters, Naomi, uh, offers up for her daughters-in-law. And uh, it's a great wish prayer for us, too. May the Lord show you kindness. So let's read these verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from, Jeru from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, not Oprah, <laughs> and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them in Bethlehem, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Okay. Well, I guess one of the first things we ought to think about a little bit is why in the midst of the big story of the Bible do we find this little story of two widows? And, uh, and part of it is we're going to have to think for a bit this morning about what it means to be a widow in ancient times, but indeed to a great extent in the world today. What does that mean? We'll come to that, but 
But this is, this is remarkable in a way that, uh, that the Jewish people would have chosen this little story and said, this is part of our word from God. The official canon, that's the word we use for it. We hear God's word in this. Now, now why would that be? Well, uh, you probably know the answer to that if you know anything about the story, but, but let's lay it out. And, and as we do so, think about the way this would have been heard by the, the Jewish people who listened to it. No doubt told for hundreds of years around, what, campfires or in synagogue or, or whatever. And uh, what, would, what would Jewish people have heard in this? Well, one of the first things they would have heard is in verse 2. Describing this family that left Bethlehem and you know, that's how they're identified here. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. So that, that is like an early signal as to where this story is going. Bethlehem is in the territory of Judah. Remember that when the Israelites under Joshua invaded the promised land, that uh, one of the first things they did was, by lot, divvy up the territories. And they divvied it up on the basis of the family structure of Jacob Israel. Jacob had 12 sons, right? So the property went to the 12 sons. They divided up by lot. And this area of Bethlehem also included Jerusalem, a little bit to the north, and then went far south from that, uh, that area f- fell to the lot of the tribe of Judah, one of those 12 sons of Israel. Within, the, uh, within each of these tribes, then, they were further broken down into what we might call clans, you know, major family units of influence. And one of the clans of Judah was the clan of Ephrath. And apparently the the descendants of Ephrath, that clan, was particularly strong in settling around the Bethlehem area. And so that's that's what's going on here, right? Uh, And in fact, sometimes Bethlehem seems to have just been called Ephrathah. So they were Ephrathites from this one strong clan of the tribe of Judah. And they were in the Bethlehem area. Now that's a signal early on in this story if, if this is part of your family history, right? You're hearing something because you know, by the time this story is written, you know that Ephrathah Bethlehem is where King David came from. And 
so that's a, a trigger, right? And we start asking the question, why, why the story of two widows, why is that significant other than being you know, a great story? But it has significance because it fits into this bigger pattern of what God is doing in bringing David as Israel's greatest king to the throne. What we're being signaled here is that this is a story about David's, what we find out is, David's ancestry. And then, of course, uh, you know, David is uh, a century after this story. And then as you go down the centuries after that, there's a, another thing. If, if you were, say, 500 years after this story, you would have heard another connection here with uh, the reference to Ephrathites and Bethlehem because you, you would likely think of the prophet Micah who also references Ephrathah and Bethlehem. We sometimes note this one around Christmas time, right? But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. <clears throat> now, th this, this comes, you know, 500 years after David. So clearly, Micah is not talking about David, but he's making the associations with David. And the Jews who heard this would have said, well, we know what this promise is. This is part of the promise made to David that he would not lack a ruler, one of his descendants, to rule over the house of Israel. And indeed, this would be a forever kingdom and this was tied to their understanding of the coming of an anointed king, the Messiah. And so, if you're a Jew down the line from this story, this Ephrathah Bethlehem has all kinds of connections, right? To David, to David's descendants, to the coming even of the Messiah who will rescue Israel and, and uh, redeem it and bless it. <clears throat> Why the story of two widows? Because they fit into this bigger pattern. In the time of the judges, that's when it says. So the judges are those local rulers who help to govern the land after, they, after the Israelites invaded the land and divided it up. Local rulers, they stand between Moses and Joshua on the one side, and in the future, the coming king who would unite the territories, and particularly that's David. So this has a place in between, and hence we find in, in our Bibles that it's sandwiched between Judges and uh, 1 Samuel. All right, so let's think about uh, two widows in the ancient world, what, what is life like for them? <clears throat> well, it's life on <clears throat> the margins. 
It's life where you don't have any space. <clears throat> the margin for error is so small. If you uh, go without a meal, which you may well do, it's not because you're still full from Christmas dinner. It's because you don't have anything. And this is <clears throat> the situation. It's the situation for this family living in Bethlehem. You get the irony there. Bethlehem is house of bread. <clears throat> and the cupboard is empty. And it's desperate enough that Elimelech, the husband, makes the decision to go to Moab. And in doing so, they become exiles from their homeland and immigrants to a foreign country. Now, if you can see the map here, uh, Judah up here on the, the west side of the map, and Bethlehem about uh, five, six miles south of Jerusalem. They decide to go to Moab, which is across the Dead Sea, uh, Moab was a place that had a lot of bad associations for the, the Jewish people. Moab <clears throat> was the uh, son of Abraham's nephew, Lot. And Moab was born out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. So that you know, that was bad to begin with. And there'd already been some bad blood between, uh, between Abraham and Lot. And uh, when the Israelites came up out of Egypt, journeyed through the wilderness, and were about to go into the Promised Land, they wanted to go through Moab, and, and they were opposed. So there's, you know, there's centuries of bad feeling here. But that's where... That's where they go, and they go there because they have heard that there's more moisture in Moab, and so the famine is not as severe there. So off they go. Uh, it doesn't say, but pretty certainly, almost certainly, what they did was follow one of the regular highways uh, north to, to Jerusalem, and then they would have gone down through the mountains because Judah is high-level plateau, mountainous area, and they would have journeyed from Jerusalem down the Jericho Road into the, the, the Rift Valley. Dead Sea, I believe, is the lowest spot on the surface of the earth in regard to sea level. So they would have journeyed down the hills on the Jericho Road, uh, crossed, doesn't work anymore, okay, uh, crossed the Jordan River and then ascended the higher elevation on the east side of the Jordan River and then picked up the King's Highway, come down through the territory of Reuben and into Moab. Journey, depends where they ended up in Moab, it doesn't tell us, but journey, say, 50 to 70 miles on foot. 
And, uh, and so now they are immigrants. Immigrants live on the margins, don't they? I mean, we, we know that even in our day. Uh, immigrants don't speak the same language normally. And so they're, they're at a disadvantage there. They don't know the culture. They don't know the ordinary things that you and I know about how to get through life. They're often without legal protections, which means that people take advantage of them frequently. Lots of injustice experienced in immigrant communities. And so on and so on. You get the idea. It's, uh, it's tough in Judah, but it's not going to be easy in Moab, even if there's a bit more food. And can they get it? All those things. And then added to that, is the experience of death that intervenes here. They're in the land. We're not told how long they're in the land, but uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, passes away. That's a shock. But she still has her two sons, and they get married to Moabite women, and so there's hope for the future. And uh, she's cared for because she's got her two sons. Sons, by the way, in the ancient world are your, are your social security system. Right? That, that, that's what they are. You want sons because they're going, they have the power, the potential power. And so Naomi's, all right, it's life on the margins, but she's got her sons and they marry, which means she may have grandsons, and the family line go on, but now death continues to intervene, and after a period of 10 years, or a little bit more, don't have exact numbers here, but roughly a decade goes by, and she's lost her husband and her two sons. So now life is really marginal, because the protection for Women is the men. So now it's this experience of widowhood. And, and let's talk a little bit more about this so we understand the dimensions of it. In, in most, oh, let's say in all of human history, here's the reality. Men are valued more than women. That is, that is how it's been since Genesis chapter 3. Men are valued more than women because men have more power. Initially, it's, it's, you know, it's the inherent power of physical power and strength. Men have been largely the determiners of culture. If you can determine a culture, you have power. And cultures, all cultures, tend to reward the people who have power. That's why immigrants are 
in trouble, right? Because they're not part of the culture. And the culture says we privilege the people who are part of us. So women, cultures virtually universally have said, have less value than men. The value of women is that they can produce more men. That's the way it's seen, right? So, so if a woman can bear sons, then she can perpetuate the family line. If she can't, it's disaster. It's shame for women. This is why you've got that recurring story in the Bible of women who are barren or who cannot give sons to their husbands. Remember the contest, we can call it that, between Jacob's two wives, Leah and Rachel? And Leah is the one that's not loved, but she's the one that can <clears throat> have babies. And Rachel can't. And, and so Leah has a value, and Rachel feels this. She feels shame. What does she say to Jacob in Genesis chapter 30? Give me children or I'll die. And, and that's probably not just hyperbole. See, her life is bound up as, as all women were. If they can't bear children and if they can't bear sons, Especially sons, because that carries on the line of the family. See, wives or, or women are going to go to another family and build up another family. Yeah, it's, it's a hard thing here. And that's, that's been throughout history. Remember Henry VIII? Six wives? And what's the driving force? Well, there's a lot. Henry's a complicated guy, but part of it is he wants a son to succeed him. And so Catherine of Aragorn, the, or Aragon, she's, she's the first wife, and she eventually gets uh, pushed out. The marriage is annulled. Why? She cannot bear a son to Henry. And then... Uh, the next one, uh, Anne Boleyn, thank you. Uh, yeah, Anne Boleyn, she gets her head chopped off. Why is that? Well, again, it's complicated, uh, but part of it is she can't bring a, an heir to the throne either. <clears throat> uh, she will give birth to Elizabeth, who will ultimately become, you know, Elizabeth I, great queen. But Henry's interested in a son. And you come right up to the present time. Boys are still valued more than girls for the most part. <clears throat> One of the ironies of the abortion culture is that more Girl babies are aborted than boy babies. Do you know that? Why is that? It's, it's cultural pressure <clears throat> that even women, unfortunately, buy into. 
<clears throat> so in the name of freedom and personal choice and all the rest, right? Women choose to abort their own sex more frequently than boys. It's ironic and sad. So women in this kind of a cultural thing especially need men to provide, to protect. The widow is at risk. Remember the four categories of people on the margins in the Bible? It's the poor, it's the immigrant, it's the widow, and it's the orphan. Now, think, think about Naomi here. She checks three out of four boxes, right? And, uh, and it's going to be the same with Ruth. When Ruth goes with Naomi to Judah, because Ruth then will become the immigrant. Well, what does all that do? <clears throat> what it creates is a situation of desperation, and Naomi is desperate. What can be done? She has heard that the Lord has brought the blessing of rain to Judah once again. And so she decides, <clears throat> as risky as it is for a woman to travel unguarded in the ancient world. She decides to risk that and head back. And, uh, and she does it initially with both of her daughters-in-law. Well, that brings us to the uh, second thing that we want to talk about here for a few minutes. And <clears throat> that is a, an idea that we encountered back when we did our study in Hosea. And it's, uh, it's the idea of kindness, <clears throat> but it's more than just kindness. It's, it's this Hebrew word, chesed. It helps if you had the virus recently to say that word. <clears throat> chesed. Clear your throat a little bit and it, it comes out pretty well. So what, what is chesed? It's what uh, Naomi says to, in her wish prayer for these women when, he, when she is sending them back. She says, go back each of you to your mother's home. Why to her mother's home? Well, <clears throat> because there's a father there, presumably. And that's protection, right? And there's also the possibility of remarriage, which again uh, gives protection and a future. So go back, and here's the wish prayer. May the Lord show you kindness, chesed, as you have shown chesed to your dead husbands and to me. So this is an important word, an important idea in the Old Testament, but especially in Ruth. I think my battery has given up the ghost. So we'll do it this way. So if you, uh, if you have one of those computer, computer programs where you can look at 
multiple translations just by clicking, you know, New International Version, New American Standard, King James, all the rest, and you go to this verse and just see how it's translated. I did that. Here's some of the things you'll find. When Naomi says, may the Lord, NIV says, may the Lord uh, show you kindness. Other translations, may the Lord do good to you. May the Lord deal kindly, graciously with you. May the Lord show you faithful love. You start to see this is a, <clears throat> this is a bigger idea than just kindness. It's the idea of kindness which goes beyond what would normally be expected, what would be called for, so to speak. In other words, there's that idea of graciousness. It's the idea of extending yourself beyond what would be in, expected in the situation. <clears throat> there's the idea of faithful love, the love which endures through difficult circumstances. May the Lord show you that as you have shown it. Hesed. All right. If you want to be that way. Uh, and, and that is what we're seeing on the human level in this story. Uh, Naomi says, you have shown, you, Ruth and Orpah, you have shown Hesed to my sons and to me. You've been faithful. You didn't uh, jump ship when your husbands died. You, you stayed with me. You've cared for me. You could have gone back to your families. You didn't. That's, uh, that's Chesed. But now they've started off on their journey back to Jerusalem, and Naomi says, uh, stops and says, both of you need to leave. Now, the question is, why didn't she say that before they left? <clears throat> and the uh, story doesn't tell us, so you can speculate. I can speculate. Maybe it is that, that Naomi understood just how hard that parting would be and was concerned that if they talked about it before leaving, that her daughters-in-law might persuade her not to leave, but she had determined on it. For whatever reason, she waits till they're starting on the road and then says, Orpah, Ruth, you need to go back. Uh, and she's going to elaborate that next week. We'll see her argument. But, but the point is, she says, you, you need to go back. And when she does that, notice that she is also exercising hesed. She is exercising kindness toward them. She's concerned, go back to your family where you have protection and go back where you can potentially find a new husband because that isn't likely to happen if you journey with me. So she is exercising faithful love toward them. So on the human level, this is a very beautiful story. 
And obviously, we're being given examples here of how we ought to function in our lives toward one another. But there's there's an elephant in the room, isn't there? The elephant in the room is this question. Where's God in all this? Where's God's kindness? Where is his faithful love to his people? See, Scripture affirms many times that hesed is a quality that is first to be found in God. It should be found in us because we're becoming more godlike. But this is a characteristic of God. Faithful love. If you just uh, look up these terms in, uh, in the Psalms, for example, it's, it's a recurring idea. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Unfailing love is the translation of hesed. The earth is full of it. But if you're Naomi, you might find yourself saying, if the Lord's, if the earth is full of God's hesed, what about Moab? Not sensing any hesed here from God. Ten years, I've lost two sons and a husband. I'm on the margin. I'm at risk. I am desperate. And because I'm a person of hesed, I have to send away my two daughters-in-law. I am alone and in danger. Where is the hesed of God? Remember somebody in the Old Testament in a similar situation? <laughs> well, we spent some time looking at Job, right? Some commentators call Naomi the, the female Job of the Old Testament. And I think that's worth reflecting on. Although, in fact, her situation is more desperate than Job's. Why? Well, Job is a man. In a man's world. Job loses a lot, but Job has the possibility of beginning again. Which is what he does at the end of the story. But Naomi... She can't start a family again. She's beyond childbearing years. So where is God in all of this? And and that's the the question that the opening leaves us with. What's going to happen? Now, you you probably know the story, so we anticipate God's going to begin to show his hand in extraordinary ways. but, But Naomi doesn't know that. And this is where we find ourselves sometimes. Maybe, maybe someone in this room, you're having this experience or you've had it. it. Tends to be better to be able to say you've had it, right? Than I'm having this experience. I feel on the margins. I feel at risk. I, I feel like God has deserted me. I don't feel like the earth is full of his unfailing love 
I feel more like Job, or as we will see next week, like Naomi. Well, let's, uh, let's try a couple takeaways here as we wrap up, huh? What can we learn from this? The first is this. God is doing something really big. And he's going to do it through Naomi and Ruth. Two marginalized women who are at risk. He's going to do something very big for them because Naomi is going to end up as the great-great-grandmother of King David. How's that going to happen? Well, uh, Naomi doesn't even know that it's going to happen. In fact, notice this. Naomi will go to her grave and she won't know that that's going to happen. That's pretty striking, isn't it? She will not know it. Naomi can't see that God's doing something big and God chooses not to explain himself. Sometimes God works in our lives in very difficult circumstances and as with Naomi, as with Job, he doesn't explain what he's doing. Well, there's a, there's a hint of resurrection. We live in a resurrection story. We live in a story that ultimately turns upward even through major suffering and even a sense of the absence of God. We live in a resurrection story. That's what the story of Jesus tells us about. And there's a hint of resurrection in this story when Naomi gets the report that God has returned in blessing to Bethlehem and Judah. There's a hint of that. <clears throat> but we shouldn't minimize the plight of Naomi or her lifelong grief. There are good things ahead for Naomi, but it doesn't change the fact she's lost a husband and two sons. So here's where I think we're left uh, in one of those songs that uh, Annette, you uh, had for us this morning. We walk by faith, not by sight. That means we walk as people who trust in the loving kindness of God. We trust in that even though we may not be able to see evidence of that in our circumstances. And that's what, that's what faith does. It, it trusts even though it can't always see. Now we, we have the advantage of being farther down the storyline, being able to see things that Naomi never was able to see. We see that God brought King David. We saw that, that God brought the Messiah. We see that God sent him to Calvary. He laid down his life. He rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he's coming back. Of course, that part we don't see yet. But we can see so much more than Naomi could 
or than Ruth could. But we're still called to the same kind of life, a trust in the promises of God, a trust that he is good, that he will ultimately bring about that which is in accordance with his good purposes. And we will somehow be included in those good purposes because we will join in the celebration feast of the Lamb. That's our hope. And so now, even in times of darkness, difficulty, chaos, 2021, right? Chaos. We walk by faith. So let's, uh, let's pray and uh, we'll sing a song. God, we thank you for the encouragement that you give us in this beautiful story of two people who, in desperate situations, trusted in you, and Lord, they were rewarded in ways that are just quite extraordinary. We want to be people like that, God, people who, who follow your promises, who trust you not only in the good times, but in the difficult, hard times. May this story that teaches us about your good purposes, may it encourage our hearts. May we be strengthened. May those particularly who are suffering uh, perhaps deeply losses that have come into their lives. Lord, would you comfort them? Would you be close to them? May they have a sense of your presence and power and protection and your surrounding love for them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah.